Black mob violence is not out of proportion. The New York Times and NPR assured me of that. When I wrote my second book, White Girl Bleed a Lot, I got a lot of really good reviews on it. A lot of, and I remember one from Breitbart, especially. The guy from Breitbart said, I "Forget the exact quote was something like, uh, Flirty was prescient and predicting this level of black mob violence and the knockout game.'" Just fine. Let's come. You know, it's kind of my policy in life. You can can actually get in trouble by doing this too, so I don't recommend you do it. But it's kind of my policy in life. If somebody's in a corner saying some really, 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 really nice things about you, I'm not going to go over and correct them to tell you the truth. I'm just not. So they said I was prescient about black mob violence and the knockout game. I said, (laughs) but the first thing I thought of was, no, I wasn't prescient. I'm not just sitting here and saying, well, I've looked at the tea leaves. I've run all the data through the Cray supercomputer down in the Batcave, and it is my prediction that the fellas are going to be attacking white people and beating the hell out of white people just for the hell of it. That's prescient. No, anybody who has ever been to a racetrack with me where I bet $5 each race on somebody I think is going to win the race, oh yeah, that'll test. You've already seen up close my prescient abilities on full display. Yeah, they don't exist. But you don't have to be prescient to do this stuff. I I saw a lot more of that over the weekend when all of a sudden everybody's talking about black violence against Jewish people, all the attacks on Jewish people, it's starting to slip out. As we mentioned in a podcast yesterday, it's getting so bad that even Dove Havkind, the you know the, the self-appointed king of all Jewish people in New York City, even he had to admit on Fox News on Sunday morning that the violence against Jews is a black thing. And most people think black people can't be racist either, by the way. And I saw a lot of people tweeting and and putting on comments on YouTube and lots and lots of other places where these stories are. People have been saying, oh, yeah, Colin's been saying that for a while. Colin's been saying that for a couple of years. And so it's not, not like I was saying it. I was just sitting there documenting it. Again, it's like this stuff is right on the surface. If you if 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 once you start getting one story about black about violence against Jewish people in New York City and you look at it, you see where it is, you look at the videos or you hear the people talking or you call a cop or you call an official with the transit system. I mean, it becomes very very clear this is an overwhelmingly Jewish thing. We've documented that here many 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 times. Nothing prescient about it. It's just I'm just open my, keeping my eyes open and saying, did you see this? Do you think it's normal that all this violence against Jewish people is an overwhelmingly black thing? I mean, even in a town where there's lots of Arabs and lots of Muslims, the Muslims are not the ones out there attacking the Jews. When I talk about racism, I'm not playing. It is unacceptable that our 
our children are suffering in 2019 when we've been going through it for 400 years. As a matter of fact, there's lots of Muslims who are victims of black violence in New York City. We'll leave that story for another day. So there's nothing prescient. It's just that's what makes this whole topic weird. It's right on the surface. Anybody, you know, so if you don't know about it, if your sister-in-law at the family Christmas party doesn't know about it, it's only because she doesn't want to know about it. It's right there. Easy to see. Easy to find. No prescience required. Hi, this is Colin Flaherty. I'm the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Back on paper pretty soon. We're working on it right now. I'm also working on the audio book on this with our buddy, Dallas, he's trying to get me to get off my butt and do the audio book of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry because we've had so many, so much success with the audio book of White Girl Bleed a Lot. Note to fledgling authors, do an audio book. Yeah, do it. Just do it, okay? Anyway, I'm the author of Don't Make the Black Kids Angry. Here we talk about black violence wildly out of proportion, how so many people are in denial, deceit, and delusion about it. And we do it all without racism, without rancor, without apology. This is all wrong. I've had more than one person tell me in the last few months, they've noticed a little rancor slipping in. Well, I'm, okay, I don't want that in here. I'm trying to keep a step back so I can keep some perspective, so I can see what's going on, to tell you guys what's going on. And you have to do that. You kind of can't be right up next to it, though that is the main reason I live in Wilmington, Delaware. I get to see all my white, my white neighbors who are in such denial, deceit, and delusion as their cars are broken into, their houses are spray-painted, people are shot, all within a block or two of where we live. And it's kind of a never-ending thing. But every, somebody's always coming in with the excuse as to why it's not really a thing and we're not going to be able to do anything about it anyway, so why even care about it? You know, one of the other things that we've been documenting around here for a long time is black violence against women. You know, the, the, people, that, the people that do the numbers for the federal government, for the Department of Justice, they've got numbers for everything. Except they don't do the black-on-white rape numbers anymore, so I am told. But the last numbers, the last five years when they did the numbers, probably probably ending four or five years ago, I mean, the, the, the statistics, statistics were all the same. Thousands and thousands of episodes of black-on-white rape, f fewer than 10, fewer than 5, sometimes zero episodes of white-on-black rape. And so that, that is easy to see as well. And if you don't know it, it's only because you don't want to know it. It's too much of a mind blower to know it. But old women are targets for black people, not just old white women, old black women, old Asian women. They're just targets that a lot of fellas just cannot resist. Just like this story down in the Atlanta area not tolerate this in DeKalb County. These are our most vulnerable citizens, and we will not have it. 
The DeKalb County Sheriff's Office sending a strong message tonight after two more arrests in the violent carjacking and beating of a 74-year-old woman. The attack happened at a Chevron station on Gresham Road and I-20. Fox Eyes' Alexa Liaco joins us now from the live desk with how deputies were able to track down those dangerous suspects. Alexa? Well, Russ, deputies say thanks to tips from the public and more than a week of undercover surveillance, the two suspected carjackers they were after are now behind bars. The brutality associated with the assaulting of a 74-year-old woman should not be tolerated. The DeKalb County Sheriff's Office says the community can breathe easier tonight, knowing two dangerous criminals are off the streets. Deputies arrested 20-year-old Atlanta resident Joshua Bryan and 19-year-old Statesboro resident Tiffany Swanson. The DeKalb County Sheriff says Bryant and Swanson were part of the crew that violently beat 74-year-old Rosa Smith at a Chevron station off Gresham Road, punching her repeatedly in the face. Deputies say after the brutal attack, the group then took off with Smith's car and her dog. If you think that you're going to intimidate the citizens of DeKalb County, we will pull out all our resources to make sure that you are taken into custody. Deputies say these arrests took careful surveillance and several tips from the community. Tipsters allowed us to locate one address which we performed active surveillance on for more than one week. At 5 a.m. Thursday, Bryant and Swanson were taken into custody from that home. Deputies arrested 17-year-old Aaron Johnson several days ago for his part in the beating and carjacking. And we pledged to give Mrs. Smith some form of justice. The sheriff's office spoke with the victim who says she's so thankful she has her dog back and that these people will not hurt anyone else. And she was grateful that uh, Sheriff and I, we stuck to our plan of action in saying that we were gonna make sure that these suspects was off the street and they could not harm any other elderly individuals. I mean, good Lord, if you wanted a more powerful example than that, what about the serial killer down there? Not necessarily DeKalb County. I forget where that one is. You guys know the one I'm talking about. The guy who worked in nursing homes. He just went around killing old white women. He's got like... 20 of them on his list now. We don't even know what the final number's going to be. It's just a fella working in nursing homes, killing old white women. I mean, these stories go on. Just You can see one of these stories a couple times a day. Here's a story out of Syracuse, New York, dated last couple weeks. I've had this in my email for a couple weeks. I don't know why I haven't gotten around to it. Headline, pure evil, man sentenced to 50 years for violent rape of 74-year-old woman in Syracuse, New York. Um, he raped the woman at the Skyline Department, didn't know her. She woke up, he was on top of her. Uh, he beat her, causing serious injuries to her head and face and forcibly had sex with her during the, during the sentencing, the judge uh, the, the, the guy who was guilty of rape, the black rapist with a long criminal history, he tried to he started telling the judge what was up. The judge told him to shut up because you're evil. There's no cure for that. The judge even said there's probably other victims of this evil guy floating around out there. It's not a word we hear anymore, is it? Evil. No, it's always like mentally ill. Okay, so we did we did two stories. We're going to get back to this black on female thing in a minute, but we just did two stories over the last week. You saw the one where the where the the woman went up to three Jewish women and spit on them and cursed at them and 
started using racial epithets against them. I mean, they arrested her, let her out the same day. Why? Well, she probably has mental issues. Day after she gets out, she goes and attacks somebody again. And then you guys may have seen that video over colinflaherty.minds.com of a black person the cops, the cops, a couple of cops stop a black person. He pretends he's putting on a jacket. When he puts his hand through the sleeve of his jacket, he uses that to punch the cop in the face, and then it's on. And here's what got my attention to this video, but I didn't even know how it was going to play out. I thought, if you, you, know, if you beat a cop, if you attack a cop, if you strike a cop, that's got to be good for some jail time. It never occurred to me that it wasn't. You know why it didn't occur to me? Because I'm not that bright. So there's the video. You guys may have seen the video. The, so the, the fella is wrestling on the ground with the cop. The fella's big, way bigger than the cop. They're choking each other. They're punching each other. The female partner is standing on the side. She has one of these like metal extending wands i don't maybe you call it a baton she's kind of like there she's kind of like hitting with it saying please sir get off him sir the only you know the only thing she didn't do was say you know mother may i get off him sir nothing happened it was like she was playing patty cake with this guy while her partner was in danger of his life one of our cops from outside of new york city said that would have been an occasion for a chokehold where he lives he said but in new york city you cannot put a chokehold on somebody i think that might have been i think that even predates eric garner when that when eric garner was wrestling with cops he 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 accidentally or intentionally put him in a chokehold next thing you know eric garner sitting on a slab in the morgue and the fellas are threatening violence anyway so they get this guy they put him in jail it's like okay you're going to go away for a while right no he's out the next he's out the same day as well he's not only out he's back where they where they stopped him in the first place they there's a picture of him with his gut hanging out over his belly his gut hanging out over his shirt and his belt it's a little bit cold out and he's got like a bottle of liquor in his hand and he's sipping on that. And when they went to his relatives, his minister, guy who knew him as a minister, he said, well, he's a little confused, but he's not really violent. No, he was violent. And they let him back out on the streets. So we, I mean, that's another thing we've been documenting here for a long time especially since this criminal justice reform thing became in such fashionable thing. It was just about a year ago when President Trump signed the, you know, the federal version of criminal justice reform into law. Now that by itself to me is not like the big deal. What the big deal was is the, the guy, the head, the tip of the pyramid sent a message out to federal employees all over the country that we have a new way of doing business here and that new way of doing business here is we're, we've been arresting too many black people for no reason whatsoever, putting them in jail for no reason whatsoever. We're putting them in jail for smoking pot, putting them in prison for life for smoking pot. We got to get them out. This encouraged a lot of people at the local state and local and state levels. So all of a sudden now we're seeing guys. I mean, this is just a thing now. Criminal justice reform. The New York State Legislature six months ago, they seven months ago. 
They passed the big no bail thing. It's kind of it's kind of in effect now in New York City. The rest of the state is going into effect on January one. They're just not gonna let. They're just gonna let you go unless they say unless you commit violence. Well, you know that guy hit a cop. They let him go. That woman was violent with those Jewish people. They let her go. They're just not into sending the fellas to jail anymore. And everybody always forgets the underpinning. Nobody wants to remind people of what the underpinnings of all this is. The underpinning is criminal of criminal justice reform is critical race theory. And that says black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere. That explains everything. And that is the only way you can explain the fact there are so many black people who get stopped, arrested, tried, convicted, sent to prison. And when they get let out, they go right back in for doing the same damn thing over again. That's criminal justice reform. That's critical race theory. That's now the law of our land, whether you know it or not. This is happening all over the country. So, you know, so we've been talking about that for a long time. And I start seeing my name pop up in some places going, yeah, Colin's been talking about that for a while. No, it's again, it's not like this is not like psychic powers. We're not running this thing through the bat computer. It's just like looking around and going families, families are shrieking. Murder victims, the families of murder victims are shrieking. They're asking, what is that person doing out on the street? And nobody has an answer. Now, we're all the pointy-headed guys that were there at the time going, Yes, Colin, back in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and that's why we have to let black people out of prison because they're in there for no reason whatsoever other than smoking a joint. Colin, you're a bad person if you don't agree with us. So now all of a sudden we're letting all these criminals out of out of prison when they should be in prison. And we've been documenting that for a year. I mean, sometimes it takes sometimes it takes a day or two, a week or two, a month or two. These people are walking out of prison, walking back into exactly what they were doing before. Sometimes it sometimes it just takes a little longer for some to get caught than others. And now we're celebrating criminal justice reform. We're celebrating the fact that all these fellows are back into the community. Mentoring younger fellas. Here's another case up in Brockton, Massachusetts. Young guy sees a white chick with a purse. Knocks her down, beats her up, steals her purse. No big deal. She was, I think she was 69 years old. Nobody gives a damn. They caught him. What's going to happen to this guy? Is she alive? Yes. Broken bones? No. Will it change her for the rest of her life? Yes. But we don't care, Colin. All we care about is that little fella that committed the crime because we failed him. About this story of a fella, this is down, again, this is dated December 29th down in Birmingham, Alabama. I saw the headline on this and I thought, well, I'd just do the headline, but maybe I'll just read the story anyway. Headline, Alabama police rescue a woman who was kidnapped at knife point suspect jailed after multiple chases gunfire and basically yeah, yeah uh, and it just goes without saying now that everybody we talk about on this channel in a case like this has a very long history of guns drugs money bitches violence sometimes murder a woman says the story was kidnapped at knife point on sunday afternoon 
Then she was rescued. A black male was trying to drag a woman into a wooded area when he spotted a witness, and then he forced his victim into a white van. And they had a big bunch of argy-bargy, but when they, when, when they finally rescued the woman, after a lot of argy-bargy, a lot of cars ramming into each other, guy tried to kill a cop by running him over with the van. This is what they found in his, in his van. He had an ex- Okay, here's what the cop said about him. He had an extensive criminal history involving assault, kidnapping, narcotics. The van was equipped with a cage in the back wire cages over the windows and had blankets covering the inside, preventing anyone from seeing inside. The doors were chained shut from the inside. The victim did not know the suspect. I mean, that's, I mean, this dude was like, he was like a professional kidnap rape artist. Had a pretty nice looking van too. I don't know where somebody in the kidnapping business gets a van but we could, write a, we could write a very large book about the things I don't know about how and why the fellas do the things that they do. Okay, here's a crazy story that one of our cops actually wrote us a letter on. You remember the cop who, who, who uh, narrated the, the cops being ambushed at a housing project in Los Angeles. We made a video out of it. We had the great Willie Shields read the letter to let us see what was going on from the cop point of view when the cops were chasing this guy through the projects. The first guy goes by, the first cop goes by, second cop comes by maybe 10, 20 seconds later. Meanwhile, a fella just kind of breaks off from a crowd, sees the cop coming, takes his gun, shoots him, I think, in the vest. Cop was able to defend himself successfully. Anyway, we had a cop narrate that video. That video went crazy. We had the head of the sergeant's union at the New York City Police Department. This became a huge deal because it was a huge story in the New York Police Department because we weren't pulling any punches. We were talking about black hostility against cops, day-to-day routine, putting cops' lives in danger. And the head of the police officer sergeant's union said this is the best video he was talking about the narration really best video he'd ever seen about what it's like day to day minute to minute to be a cop next day after he sent it out to all of his members the new york post called him up and he said hey um some people say that's not a very nice video and he goes oh i'm sorry didn't mean i'm so sorry yeah, I'm sorry, I take it down. I didn't even see it. Yeah, that's not true. Anyway, so this same guy is gonna he's gonna comment on this story here. Here's the headline. Missing Alabama woman was last seen leaving a bar. Later texted friend that she might be in trouble. Police say a 29-year-old Alabama woman has been missing since December the 20th, the same night she texted a friend to tell her she might be in danger. Uh, she left the bar in Birmingham about 1045. She left the bar with two men. I don't think the story says they were two fellas, uh, but they were. And she texted her friend she might be in trouble. Here's what we got from our cop who did now, now famous dictation for what happened in L.A. Hey, Colin. As a law enforcement officer, 
It is a huge understatement to say that we are exposed to the most intimate and distressing moments of people's lives. We are also in the unique position to notice patterns. In fact, we are trained and paid to notice patterns as a means to predict and prevent crime. One of the patterns I noticed over the years led to heartbreaking results time after time. I live and work in a medium-sized town. He didn't always do that. Used to work, used to work in the baddest parts in the biggest cities in America. Like many cities in the U.S., we have a large college population with a nearby military base. As is with any town with a military base and a college campus, we have a very busy bar scene in our downtown. Over years of working the bar district, I noticed a very noticeable pattern of behavior exhibited by bar patrons. Each night would start out innocently enough, but as the hours wore on, drunken and unruly behavior would commonly occur. The town I live in is predominantly white, overwhelmingly white, so the problems were always minor. A fist fight here, a domestic assault there, nothing major. On the, rare, on the rare occasions when actual violence, a shooting or stabbing occurred, it was almost always from the neighboring military base or the neighboring towns. Bars here close at 2 a.m. As they close, hundreds of men and women who waited out the last call pour into the streets. There, they drunkenly figure out rides home or frequent one of the many hot dog vendors who stayed around for the let out rush. Remember, he's talking about he's not talking about let out fights here because this is a white bar scene. We've documented lots and lots of let out fights in black bars. Back to the letter. Without fail, at about 2.33 a.m., carloads of fellas would show up. They were not there to frequent the, any establishments or to put money back into the community. They had a preloaded crowd of potential victims that didn't, they didn't have to spend any money on or waste any time performing the usual courting behavior. They were there to victimize people. Nothing more. They would catcall overtly drunken groups of women walking across the street, illegally park their cars, and mingle into the let-out crowds. The plates were always from out of state. This, one is, this was an indicator they came from the military base. It was easy to see the motives of the fellas. They were there to take advantage of the drunken lack of inhibition displayed by the young white college girls and to exploit their greatest fear— the fear of being considered a racist. I would always do my best to wade into the crowd to shadow the fellas in an attempt to be a visible beacon of safety for the targeted women, someone to get them out of there. Obviously, I couldn't help them all. I would soon learn the exact script of this deviant and shameless tactic employed by the fellas. I learned the script when I switched from working the bar team to working the day watch patrol. Day watch is when the victimized college girls would wake up sober, either at home or in the apartment of a strange fella. The story was always the same. The girl was intoxicated. The next thing she knew, she was in the clutches of at least one, but more often than not, several fellas. The conversation would always start the same. The fellas would tar target an obviously drunk and vulnerable co-ed. Hey, why don't you come through? Why don't you come through the crib and dance with us and have 
a drank. That's what they would tell her. Their reply might be, well, I don't really think so. I've got class tomorrow. I don't really know you. And they would say, oh, I see how it is. You don't want to go nowhere with no black man. The trap has now been set. This vulnerable young girl whose parents are paying $60,000 a year for their darling daughter to learn that she is a racist and that black people are relentless victims of relentless white racism all the time, everywhere, that explains everything, is about to be taken advantage of. This manufactured guilt all comes rushing back to the surface, desperate to prove there is not one single molecule of racism in her entire body. She utters the sentence that will change slash ruin her life forever. I'm not racist. Sure, I will go with you. This happened time and time and time again. I would meet with one or two or even three girls every Saturday morning, clothes disheveled, mascara running down their faces, always the stale smell of alcohol still on their breath. The horror story was always, always, always the same. They'd be led up to the apartment by one or two fellas, only to discover three or five, three to five more fellas in the room waiting. The heat was always unbearably high, and the apartment sparsely furnished a TV, a couch, a bare mattress. Once inside, there was no escape. I often wondered if the girls just gave up to avoid violence or if they did what they had to do not to make the black kids angry, signed your cop. Wow. Now that is a powerful letter. Does any of this sound a little bit familiar? Is it ringing any bells? Does anybody remember when Mike Pence, vice president of the U.S., he wasn't even sworn in yet, he went to Broadway to see the hottest musical up there, Hamilton. And from the stage, one of the fellas, his name is Brandon Victor Dixon. He read, he, he lectured Mike Pence on, you know, how to be a, lectured him on not being an asshole and being a good person and doing the right thing. So this is the guy. Now let's pick this up from Irish Central, but this is all over the place. Brandon Victor Dixon, a star of Hamilton as Aaron Burr, addressed uh, Mike Pence from the stage on Friday night, urging him to change his views on issues such as tolerance and gay rights. But Dixon was guilty of a very bizarre comment himself involving St. Patrick's Day. The tweet sprang back into prominence from a couple years ago because of the Hamilton furor, with many commentators claiming it refers to black people raping drunken girls on St. Patrick's Day. Here's the original tweets and some of the reaction. This is from Brandon Victor Dixon, a blue checker. Quote, St. Patrick's Day weekend is like Christmas for black dudes who like white chicks. Happy holidays, boys. Twitter went set, you know, became set on fire for that. Everybody was accusing him of rape and abuse and all that other stuff. And what did he have to say? What other interpretation of there is that except what we just heard from our cop telling us what's happening to our sisters, our daughters, when we send them off to college, our nieces, our neighbors, we send them off to college 
and they don't have the slightest idea what they're getting themselves into. Isn't that the story of the woman from the freshman from Barnard College? I think her name is Tess Major. Walked into a park that for time immemorial, students of Columbia and Barnard knew was a place that was not safe for white people. Nobody told her. She goes into the park. She comes out dead. And so we've been documenting these kind of stories for a long time. Again, it's not prescience. It's not super genius. These stories, if you just kind of like, once you're tuned into them and once you lose, use Google a little bit, your Google News alerts, you, you, you would just be overwhelmed with all manner of these stories. You know, every Christmas, and I used to, sp I used to be a lot more diligent about this around Christmas time and the time between Thanksgiving and Valentine's Day. And I think the one year I really paid attention to it, we came up with 45 or 50 examples of large-scale black mob violence at malls. I think this year we've already done 10 or 15. The audio isn't that great for these things. Often it's just a bunch of people screeching at each other and, and causing all sorts of violence and destruction at a mall. We just did two the other day, one from Nashville, one from Connecticut. I mean, in Connecticut, they had three malls closed in one night. It's like Stockton, two malls closed one night. My little skating, in my little uh, uh, skating rink near my town. You know what? We'll hold the skating rink. We're going to do something else. We're going to start with something else. I mean, we we did it. We did a story a few weeks ago. I think it's called, you know, something lights, Christmas lights, holiday lights, the National Zoo in Washington D.C., where the admission is free. This is now, that zoo is now an occasion of black mob violence, predictably, regularly, that drives a whole lot of people away. The cops know it. The people around the zoo know it. Apparently, the only people who don't know it are the people we send out to be reporters about it. Security is being beefed up at the National Zoo following chaos that forced the zoo light celebration to shut down early Saturday night. Just a block from the zoo, two teens were shot and wounded as many were leaving the event. Zoo security will use screening, including bag checks and wanding on nights when larger crowds are expected. Saturday night, someone set off firecrackers on zoo property, leading to a panic when many thought shots were being fired. I spoke to the head of the union that represents zoo police via FaceTime. He says the additional security measures are not enough and that zoo police are understaffed. Everything is wide open. There's no way you can stop people from coming in. A zoo spokeswoman says that's not true, that there are three points of entry, that wanding and bag checks are only part of the solution. And she says zoo staffing is supplemented with contractors and some security officers from other Smithsonian properties. Uh, they are not used to doing the kind of police work that the zoo has to do. Which goes without saying, when you take firecrackers into that zoo, let alone guns, and you start throwing them around, that freaks the people out. Yes, and we have done stories here about how fellas go into zoos and start throwing things at the animals. It's always fellas. Why is that? Are we cherry-picking here? Or is it just so, such an overwhelming number? Is it such a tsunami that there's so many fellas doing this, it just totally engulfs the one out of 100, one out of 200, one out of 300 times when there's a, a white 
or an Hispanic or an Asian person involved. Let's go out to the uh, let's go out to Dayton, Ohio, out to the roller rink. Sakay, Colin the Psychic. How many stories have we done on black mob violence in roller rinks? Dozens. Never seen one involving white people. Never. George Soros pays people to listen to my podcast and watch my videos. If they had a video of a bunch of white kids at a roller skating rink causing a riot to match any even coming close to match our collection, including one that just happened a few weeks ago near good old Collins house in Wilmington, Delaware. Yeah, we would know about it. Instead, what we get is this from Dayton. Good evening, Katie. Yes, the Orbit Fund Center here in Huber Heights was anything but fun as over over eight different agencies appeared right to this parking lot to try to break up a fight. Residents that we spoke to said that it could have been much worse, but this is the first time a fight has happened here. We never had it, nothing like this. I think there's a lot of people coming for a lot more than skating. Charlie Craddock told me he used to come here when he was in high school. He says in his days, things used to be calmer. But that wasn't the case Saturday night. And it appears to be a magnet for uh, violent activity here lately. According to Huber Heights Police, they got a call about a fight that broke out. Once officers arrived, police said several fights were happening with more than 200 juveniles in the parking lot. After Huber Police were unable to break off those fights, officers issued a Signal 99 for units of the surrounding agencies to assist before the order was restored. I think they need much more security apparently at the business site to control that size of a crowd and if they don't have enough security to control that size of a crowd they need to work to enhance that. I tried to talk with Orbit employees who didn't want to go on camera. Management did issue a statement saying guest safety and security are paramount and their facility establishes rules and regulations to ensure everyone has an enjoyable time. But longtime attendees like Craddock feel they need to enhance the things that take away from that. If you're watching things going on and you see a problem occurring, step into the problem before it becomes the real problem. Excellent. Better crowd control. Now, Huber Heights police told me that five to ten arrests have been made in regards of Saturday night's in, uh, incident. And in, in regards of Orbit Center management, they said their staff plans on meeting with Huber Heights police to see how they can evolve their policies. You know, one of the other themes we, we, we develop here every month, a couple times a month, is what happens to black people when they go to school and maybe they're not ready for it. What happens when they get all these academic credentials in subjects that have no meaning, no value, where the only value it has is the value you can get from going back to a black school and teaching other black people about it? This, this is going to sound harsh to this, you know, this lovely lady starting out a career as a PhD, but you know what? I don't care because... Okay, just listen to this story written by a white woman in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Here's the headline. A newly minted PhD credits her West Philly mom for her success. So she's a PhD, right? When I hear somebody has a PhD, the first thing I want to know is, well, what'd you write your PhD in? Did you like discover that I, you know, that Isaac Newton was wrong or that Einstein's theory of relativity has an addendum to it or something like that. No, that's not the world this lovely lady's living in. So she goes through the song and dance 
of the single mom hardship growing up plus victimhood around every single nook and cranny. Okay, so they went and found the woman's mom. Her name is Maria Primus Jones. She worked multiple jobs to put her daughters in private schools and enrolled them in every activity she could find, tennis, cheerleading, and track. And she was honest with them, parentheses. Here comes the victim story. Here comes the talk. Quote, I told them, a quote she told her children, including the PhD. We are a community that makes life really hard for people, and the only way that you're going to make it is to have an education. But I also needed them to always know where they came from and that a lot of children that look like them didn't have the same opportunities they did. So she, was, she went to a high school in Philadelphia where she liked to read, and uh, good for her. She got a degree in English Lit from Westchester University and St. Joseph's University. She got a master's, and she decided she wanted to be a teacher. She minored in African-American literature. Of course, she tried teaching in high school. Then she figured out, well, we didn't really have the resources to do a good job because the system was not designed to prepare low-income students for college. But then she, when she got to a black college and started teaching English there, everything clicked. Cue the victimization. Quote, we always talk about students of color being able to be in an environment where they see themselves represented. When you are in a predominantly white spaces, you're more careful. But I create this really safe space for my students. They've, they feel safe bringing their authentic selves, their authentic perspectives, whatever the hell that means. Translation. Yeah, we get all these black kids that don't want anything to do with white people and we bring them to our school to reinforce those attitudes so when they get out of school, the only job they could find better have the qualification of you must be totally versed in all the different methods that white people can be imaginarily racist to black people. Okay, now we go for some of the accomplishments of this new PhD who's been teaching for a couple years. Well, she's been busy in and out of the classroom, says the article, helping to launch a black studies major and a diversity certificate program, equipping college faculty and staff, many of whom are white people teaching students of color, with cultural competency lessons. She also led efforts to recruit a more diverse faculty at the college. Translation, Everything about this chick's life revolves around the fact that she is black and she is a victim and she doesn't like white people for making her a victim. So now she's going to instruct these white people in cultural competency. You know, remember when Kamala Harris went on that show, The Morning Club, and she was telling people that, you know, she was telling the, uh, the, the DJs, they were asking her, what well, do you smoke pot? You ever smoke pot? She goes, yeah, I used to smoke pot in college when I listened to Tupac. Yeah, Tupac wasn't even around when she was in college. That's cultural competency. You have to like smoking pot while listening 
to Tupac. Get you some white motherfucking friends. You ain't gotta sleep with them, but you gonna need them motherfuckers. If you go to jail and call your nigga friends, these motherfuckers will interrogate you more than the goddamn police did. <laughs> they had your ass on the phone. Where the fuck was you at? What the fuck was you doing? Why the fuck you ain't call me? Not your white friends. Them motherfuckers will be there by the time you hang up the phone and they'll be madder than you. Just what the fuck did he do? Murder, murder, dude. Look, I fucking known him for two weeks. He wouldn't fucking do something like that. Gotta love white people. I don't give a fuck what you say. White people are friendly. You can call them motherfuckers up at three o'clock in the morning with the wrong number and they won't even be mad at you. They just, hello? No, I'm sorry, no Shaquita here. Well, what number did you dial? No, it's a nine, not a seven. We'll try it. If it doesn't work, call me back. We'll figure this thing out. Now, of course, this new PhD, her efforts weren't always easy, nor were they initially well-received in this black college. But she said it's been well worth the effort. The goal of my students is just not to get through class, is to succeed in four-year institutions. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so she was doing a lot of this teaching while she had her master's. Then she found a place called Indiana University of Pennsylvania where she could get her PhD working here, working there, working everywhere. Quote, after finishing and defending her dissertation, examining the complexities of black women's mental health and fiction. Wow. Surprise. She did a dissertation on black women and their mental health and fiction. Are there any black PhDs that are capable of talking about anything except themselves writ large? Is that possible? You know, the people around the Philadelphia Inquirer, the person who wrote this, Kristen Graham, they don't even realize what this article really says, the subtext of this article. They're really just saying, hey, look at this. Isn't this amazing? A black woman got herself a PhD. What's next? That's not condescending. That's not insulting. Oh, yeah, if you went up to her and you said, oh, my God, you have a PhD? That's amazing. You don't find black women with PhDs. Oh, she would jump all over your stuff and talk to you about cultural competency all night and day. But the only reason this story exists is because of that exact thought, because if a black woman getting a PhD is not news, then what the hell is it doing in this newspaper? Look, you want to get a PhD? You want to teach in college? I guess that's okay. I don't know. But at some point, black people are going to stop having to major in black studies, going to have to stop specializing in racial resentment, going to have to stop developing an expertise in all this white racism around there, mostly imaginary where when you find it, you expose it to the world with an ecstatic presentation. I mean, that's not sustainable. That's not going to last forever. Because at some point, people are just going to say, I don't know if that, I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to happen next week. But at some point, people are going to say, hey, you know, 1492 when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that was a long time ago. Do we really need you to have a PhD just to offer us more excuses why there is so much violence, dysfunction, mayhem, and chaos among black people that we see documented here every damn day? Whether it's at the zoo, whether it's at the roller rink, 
whether it's at a college bar where black guys are raping white girls, do we really need to see more excuses for that kind of behavior? Oh, believe me, I know you've got the PhD. You've got That's all you do when you have a PhD in black studies. It's nothing but excuses. Oh, Colin, it's very complicated. It's going to take me about 26 hours for you to explain why there's so much dysfunction, mayhem, chaos, violence, and why so many white people are attacked by black people and why so few black people are attacked by white people. All right, let's hit the back stretch here. Another, again, something else. So this is either being prescient, which it's not, or it's somewhere between prescient on one end, which it's not, or on the other end, I'm harping on this and I'm badgering you with it. I hope we're not at that end, but it's about public transportation. I'm gonna this year we've been there's been a half a dozen stories or cities around the country, at least a half a dozen. Over the last couple of years, there's been twenty or thirty of these stories about bus drivers being attacked. It's like every town does one of these stories just the same way they do a story about every city, the teachers in every public, big public school district in the country are under attack. And when they run the video, you see what's going on on the videos. When you hear the teachers talk, when you get the emails from the teachers, from the bus drivers, it's very clear what's happening. This is black crime and violence wildly out of proportion. Well, why don't we introduce this latest clip about bus driving, Bus tax on bus drivers out of Detroit. Okay, I go. I know. I get it. That's not really a good story because, you know, it's really, that's really a dog bites man story. That's not a story. Man bites dog is a story. If the bus drivers in Detroit were not being attacked, physically assaulted every damn day, I guess that would be a legitimate story. But we're going to run it in here just to complete the pattern. But before we go to Detroit, why don't we go to Chicago headline? Group of teens beat and robbed two victims on the loop red line. So they, the people were getting on, on the trolley at the loop, high-end part of Chicago, 6 to 10 to 15 black people see an old white guy. They start hassling him, beating him. He gets off. They follow him. A white guy follows them off to try to help the older dude. They beat the piss out of him, too. Everybody's in the hospital robbed. And to their credit, at least CWB Chicago said, yeah, they were described as black people. Surprise. White people on public transportation, not just Chicago, but in places all over the country, are targets of black hostility, black crime, black violence. You know, the craziest one we ever did was out of Baltimore. This couple used to Take a bus every day to pick their kid up, 10-year-old kid up at school, little toe-haired, red-haired kid, white kid. A couple felt like they had to take a bus to grab the kid rather than let him walk home or take the bus home because that's the kind of town Baltimore is. So one day, these three people get on the bus, the mom, the dad, the kid, and the lady bus driver says, would you please back up? And they said, there's no room. We can't back up. Next thing you know, the black bus driver's on the phone calling her fellas in the next two bus stops. She goes, I got a problem with some white people here. Would you come take care of this? A bunch of fellas get on the bus at the next stop. They waited for the three white people to get off the bus and they beat the living holy hell out of them. A mother, a father, and a kid. Yeah, this was all on video. We talked about this many times before. Yeah, they convicted her of that. So that's probably the craziest example of what's going on on the public transportation. 
But if you talk to the bus drivers, they're the tip of the spear. They're the ones being attacked the most. Why don't we just hear this story out of Detroit? We begin on this Friday night with DDOT drivers under attack. Good evening. I'm Dave Llewellyn. And I'm Carolyn Clifford. Drivers say they are scared after recent attacks. One driver even taking to social media saying she is concerned for her own safety. 7 Action News reporter Alan Campbell joins us live tonight. Alan, how are transit police getting involved here? Well, Dave and Carolyn, right now, transit police are telling me that they are going to be investigating this recent incident, and they say that their drivers shouldn't have to come to work in fear. He has had contact with this particular driver in the past. DDOT bus drivers are on edge after several attacks were reported in the last week involving verbal and physical assaults. Passengers say drivers shouldn't have to fear for their safety. They're having to worry about not making it home safe. That's kind of, that's messed up. Transit Police Chief Ricky Brown says they are aware of incidents and are currently investigating the most recent report, which was filed on Wednesday. Verbal and then turned physical. And that information, because it's still under investigation, uh, I don't want to go into too much more detail. Passengers we spoke to say they've seen bus drivers assaulted firsthand. And they on that bus route all day, all night. You never know. You got people that get mad and come back. So you have to deal with that, too. One driver taking to social media describing a recent attack, saying she was jumped by a man after he forced his way onto her bus. She says she had to defend for herself. The attack left her with several injuries and was all caught on camera. Video provided by our DDOT video surveillance, uh, was able to capture a good picture of the individual. Um, that information has been turned over to the 12th precinct for uh, investigation and follow-up. Brown says drivers shouldn't worry about being harassed or assaulted while on the job, and they will get to the bottom of this and make sure drivers are safe while at work. Okay, surprise. Bus drivers in Detroit are being attacked by the fellas. Okay. I'm sorry to bore you with something you already know. <laughs> okay, let's get the backstretch here. I want to finish up with this one headline, one story out of Cleveland. So we know Cleveland is going now through a period. Well, everybody's going through this. Cleveland, Indianapolis, all these places maybe you've never been. Lots and lots of shootings, lots and lots of murder, lots and lots of people giving lots and lots of solutions that never work, that only make things worse. Cleveland's one of them. Lots of shootings in Cleveland. 90% black victims, 90% black shooters. Here's a headline. How to avoid being shot in Cleveland. And who's illustrating the article? A white dude holding a gun with his white fingers and a hoodie. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Jesse Jackson. And I was recently quoted in the Washington Post as referring to a certain group of people as Jaime's. <laughs> they also said that I called New York Jaime Town. I realize that kind of talk isn't kosher, <laughs> but let me see if I can explain it to you all in song. Doesn't get much more disingenuous than that. Disingenuous, of course, translates as someone who's lying their ass off, but you just want to call them that in the politest way that you can. Just like the Rev, just like Dove Hovkind up there in Brooklyn, he's been. I don't know if he's trying to be polite about it. I don't know if he's being disingenuous about it. No, at first it was dis polite. Now it's now it's disingenuous. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Dove wrote a letter to the mayor of New York, De Blasio, 
And he even and he even said in the letter, which I don't think it was released until recently, the letter it said, you know, we ought to we got this epidemic of violence against Jewish people. He didn't say who was doing it, but he did say he would like the mayor to help set up a series of meetings and dialogues between the Jewish leaders and the black leaders. So we can all get together, smile on each other, everybody love one another right now. Okay, so what's going to happen at this meeting? What is the best possible outcome? So what are the Jewish people going to say at the meeting? What are they going to say? Tell me. They didn't they're not they're not attacking black people. No, they're just trying to live their lives, keep their head down and just put one foot in front of another. They are the ones who are victimized and terrorized. And you're going to have this meeting, the, 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 the main thrust of which is that Jewish people are going to beg black people to stop attacking and victimizing and terrorizing them. How does that work? Does that ever work? Please, please don't beat me up. Wing, bam, boom. I'm sorry. You can't fight that kind of senseless, mindless, hate-filled violence with, with appeals to their mercy, appeals to their common sense. That's not self-defense. That's stupidity. That's surrender on a dangerous level. Why do we have to tell you that? You don't know anybody in the armed services in Israel when the Palestinians attack the Jews. What do you think the Jewish people in Israel do? Do you think they put up a, a big peace offering and saying, oh, here's a bunch of free stuff. Please don't attack us anymore. Doesn't make a damn bit of difference. They're going to kill as many Jews over there as they can whenever they can, whenever they get the chance. This isn't any difference. Why is that so hard for the self-appointed Jewish leader, Dove Hofkin, to figure out? When is he going to start letting the people, the Jewish people in Brooklyn and surrounding areas from Jersey City to Monzi, suburbs of New York City, that they are under a threat of constant violence from the fellas? When's that going to happen? Hasn't happened in a long time. Because doing that, that's doing something that Dove Hofkin just doesn't want to do for any reason, for reasons of his own. That would just make the black kids angry. Talk to you tomorrow. Black mob violence is not out of proportion. The New York Times and NPR assured me of that. Just some teenagers blowing off some steam. Oh, come on, good old Colin. It's just exaggeration. Just look at all our numbers. Everything's just fine. Let's come together, Akumbaya. The local city board knows just what to do. All that we need is midnight basketball. Oh, come on, good old Colin. It's just imagination. Just look at all our numbers. Everything's just fine